So I am John, your servant and friend, your Bishop Diocesan, and I bring you greetings on behalf of a holy host. First of all, the seventh Bishop Suffragan of the Diocese of Los Angeles, the first woman ever elected Bishop in our diocese, Diane Jardine Bruce, the Canon of the Ordinary, Melissa McCarthy, and all of your servant colleagues at St. Paul's Commons, where we pray for St. James Church and its leaders and people daily. So Diane's leaving. We can talk about it. It makes us anxious. She is a large presence in our diocese. Her ministry of justice, of equity, of fiscal creativeness and innovation, her active work with new community ministers from one end of this diocese to another. It will be difficult for us to figure out how to make sure there's enough light to penetrate the shadow left by her departure. And yet we will be okay because we're in the resurrection and all things are being made new all the time. The people of the Diocese of West Missouri consenting at their diocesan convention in early November, she will be there, Bishop Provisional, for two or three years, depending on how long it takes to address the issues that interim ministry has to address, whether at a parish or mission or in a diocese. Diane being Diane, she may take care of business in four to six months, who knows? But she has promised to come back and retire in our diocese, and the Holy Spirit will provide. And uh, because it's Sunday, and this is a small-e Episcopal visitation, I know a lot of our churches wonder about the, about the visitation schedule, because there's 134 churches, and we like to get to each of them every two years, and a bishop by themselves can make about 35, but we've got some secret weapons including the right Reverend Frank Brookhart, yay, of St. James in the city, retired Bishop of Montana. He'll be doing some of the visitations. His colleague from the House of Bishops, the retired Bishop of Northern Indiana, Ed Little, who is in many ways a child of this diocese, will be doing some visitations. And we are bringing in the former presiding Bishop herself, Catherine Jefford Shorey, who will make her way 12 times a year, yay, all the way from Nevada to do visitations to the Diocese of Los Angeles. So we have plenty of bishops and we'll be back soon. Speaking, however, of Brother Brookhart, I, I was actually realizing I'm going to start calling this the St. James Think Tank. I mean, think about what you've got going on here. You've got the experience of veteran priests of our diocese like Betsy Anderson and Lee Walker. You have got the prophetic servant heart of Father John Kim. You've got the administrative savvy of John Fuse, who as we now is helping the NFL start to treat itself better, sort of organizationally, when it comes to human relationships there. 
You've got Canon Jim Buonamani and his absolutely epic music program. You've got Peter Reinke at St. James School, who has become my friendly counselor on all matters related to Episcopal education and Episcopal identity. You've got the liturgical and technical expertise of Canon John Thies and Justin Baker, enabling all of you listening in from around the world to be able to participate in our worship. We've got Canon for Common Life, Bob Williams, a member of your vestry, basically the archivist, historian, and curator of the Diocese of Los Angeles. Your vestry is an extraordinary catalog and reservoir of experience and wisdom. I had a wonderful exchange with your Bishop's Warden Arnold uh, this morning and and the newest arrival, the Reverend Susan Stanton. Let me tell you something about Susan Stanton. We all know from Peter Drucker that culture eats reform for breakfast. And what Reverend Stanton has done nevertheless, she's come into our diocese in just the last few months, she has both learned about a new culture and she has begun epically to transform the culture in our diocese toward one of transparency, accountability, and, and just rational good sense in budget writing. And as a consequence of her work, in conjunction, I might say, with Candon Andy Tomat, who I believe the Holy Spirit has brought to uh, St. James this morning, or at least somebody who looks like Tomat from, from the nose up, and members of the Joint Budget Committee, for the first time, yea, since the time of the Thessalonians, we will lay before diocesan convention on Saturday, November 13th, the first truly balanced budget that anybody can remember in the Diocese of Los Angeles. Susan and Andy, thank you. And I'm just getting started. <laughs> because Mary Nichols is here this morning with her son, Nick. You know her so much better than I. For 20 years, the chair of the California Air Resources Board, widely understood to be the most effective environmental regulator in history. And on the issues of creation, care, and global warming, and whatever else she chooses to bring before the great congregation, Mary will be our convention keynoter on the 13th of November in Riverside. And she is herself kind of like a high pressure system. The very fact of her focusing on these issues on the diocese is impelling us to get serious about a new task force on global warming, which will soon be announced in the Diocese of Los Angeles. And all of this is stitched together with seeming ease by your wise and cheerful and learned Rector Kate. I remember about three and a half years ago, I was relatively new on the job, and your then senior warden, Steve, brought Kate to meet me at St. Paul's Commons, because if a church as important as St. James is about to call a rector whom the bishop hasn't met, it's thought to be wise to arrange an opportunity for them to get a look at one another. And, um, and to quote the movie, <laughs> she had me at hello. I know she had you at hello, and indeed you had her at 
hello. So natural and easy and destined by the Spirit is this relationship. And I remember after that meeting and, and realizing that it was pleasing to Steve to hear my opinion, although I told him that all of the candidates you were considering were equally well qualified. I remember thinking, is everything about this job gonna be this much fun and this easy? Meeting people like Kate Kress? Well, like all jobs, I think the answer is a lot of the times yes, sometimes no, but if we're thinking about it the right way, it's always a source of joy. Because just as I give thanks for her and indeed for you each day, I know you give thanks for one another and Kate each day, at least I hope you do, because what I've learned in my modest little spiritual practice is that giving thanks is what makes my vocation sing. And I think it's true of anything we do in the world. I'd go so far as to say that teaching and learning the spirit of thankfulness, of building up the, the muscle in our heart that says thank you automatically is at the heart of Christian formation. Indeed, um, there was in our history, as a people of faith, which is a long one, goes way before Jesus. Our whole tradition is a laboratory for germinating a spirit of thankfulness, and one experience in particular. I wish I had Frank Brookhart or Canon Jim Newman to help me with this heavy-duty exegesis and Bible study. I'm going to do my best here as a layperson. But you want to go back to that moment early in the sixth century before Christ. And, and the people in Jerusalem, at least the elites in Judea, had withstood a couple of centuries of, of attempts at conquest by large powers in the region, and they had resisted, but finally, they couldn't anymore. And so, a conquering power took, at the very least, the intellectual, cultural, and theological elite of that time, they picked them up out of Jerusalem, they picked them up out of the temple, and they took them across the vast, uncharted wastes, basically reversing Abraham's historic journey. They took them all the way to exile in Babylon. I'm going to show that I'm a baby boomer, not that you needed any proof, by, by remembering the Jimmy Cliff song from the Harder They Come album and moving. By the rivers of Babylon where we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. If you're looking for uh, uh, the basis for a really good Apple TV miniseries, go take a look at Psalm 137. The whole history of the Babylonian captivity is in that psalm, including the captors in Babylon cruelly taunting those whom they've enslaved. Sing us songs uh, from your temple. Sing us songs of 
Zion. And instead, the prisoners imagined slaughtering the Babylonians' children by dashing their heads against a rock. It would make great television. What happened? When they came back, did they bring their anger and resentment with them? Did they keep faith and hope alive? Because they did come back. Seventy years after they went into captivity, were sent back to Jerusalem and given permission to rebuild their temple. And before we focus on them, let's talk a little bit about us, because we too came home after a pandemic exile, didn't we? We too were banished from our temple, were we not? The last time I saw members of the St. James Choir, they were standing in a circle in a soccer field in a socially distanced manner making a video, and it was just beautiful, and we made the most of it. And for those of us who are still worshiping with us via live stream, we are one community. But by and large, when we can, it is a blessing to be able to be together incarnationally in church. And when we did finally get back, what feeling did we bring to that moment? Did we walk in here with a sense of entitlement, like something that belonged to us had been unjustly taken from us and we were getting back what we deserve, what we've contributed to, what our forebearers spent a lot of money building? Did we get mad at the governor for keeping us out? Did we consider a lawsuit? Well, you felt what you felt. But we got from our scripture this morning a pretty good indication of what happened when what Jeremiah called the remnant of Israel was gathered back from what seemed like the ends of the earth, gathered back to Jerusalem, back to Zion. What did they feel? It was sung for us magnificently this morning when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. They were, then we were like those who dreamed. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. There was no resentment, there was no anger. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad indeed. Their hearts brimmed with thanksgiving and love and joy. They had experienced grace. And what happens when we experience grace? We take on the mantle of thankfulness. And because of the return from exile, something happened to the Bible. The pre-exilic prophets, even some more ancient parts of Scripture, they got a post-exilic edit. And the post-exilic prophets renewed the call to welcome the stranger and visit the prisoner and find a place for the homeless to live and proclaim the good news of God's love and favor. Exile put the train on the track for the Christ event. Just ask Jesus. Early in Jesus' ministry, we heard it just recently read out, thanks to the lectionary, Jesus went, we're told, to the synagogue in Nazareth. He must have been on the rota for the reading that morning, and they unrolled the scroll. And he said, 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release of the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. favor. Jesus was the greatest Bible scholar and teacher who ever lived and to announce the beginning of his ministry in his hometown, he ran his finger down the scroll to Isaiah chapter 61, a post-exilic text informed by the essential thankfulness of return from exile. We needed exile and return to lead us to Jesus. And Jesus used exile and return to explain himself to us. By the same token, this is hard to hear, even a little hard to say, because we need our disappointments and our most devastating losses to teach us how to survive, to teach us how to give thanks. What hurts us is never the will of God, but it's part and parcel of this magnificent gift of life we're given in a broken and a dangerous and a still sinful world. Now, nobody can persuade me to give thanks when my heart insists that I'm gonna spend the day complaining. And I know you know that feeling. But I can remember, I can always remember, this is why it helps to keep coming back to church again and again. I can remember the Word of God. And I can remember what it teaches me about the consequences of exile and return and the whisper on the wind to give thanks, to give thanks at all times, to give thanks. And when I don't hear that whisper, my not hearing blinds me to the face of God and those around me. When I close my ears to the power and sometimes the indictment of these sacred stories, I become like Bartimaeus, crying for mercy, not realizing that mercy is right in front of me. My spouse Kathy and I have granddaughters Franny and Harriet. They are, of course, cousins. One is two, the other is going on five. And they live near us and live near one another. But for a year, the Franny and Harriet variety show was suspended. They couldn't see one another and we couldn't see them. If there was anything that grandparents who live close to grandchildren are entitled to take for granted, it's seeing grandchildren. But no, I had taken it for granted. I'm busy, you're busy, sometimes of a weekend or when they're over. I'm busy doing emails just like you're doing emails and I've got the computer on my lap and I feel a tug or a poke on my knee and my pre-exilic heart would say, later darling, I have to finish this important email to Canon Jim Newman. My post-exilic heart somehow causes the MacBook to drift out of my hands and land safely on the couch cushion because I'm thinking with the better part of my heart. I'm not taking simple, small blessings 
for granted anymore. The last time Franny was over, she presented a package of what she insisted were washable markers. And she expressed the desire to color with them on my giant bald head. The pre-exilic John would have said later, my darling. The post-exilic John said, color away. The spirit of thanksgiving, which is in each of us, it dwells in each of us. Elsewhere in Jeremiah, it says that it was placed in each of us at the beginning of all things. It is in our DNA. It is our most important property. We just build hedges around it and convince ourselves we don't have to feel that way in this particular instance because someone's trying to get something that we want or think we need more than they do. But we're building a hedge, we're shielding ourselves, the feeling is still there. And if we, if we let our guard down, and give in to the spirit of thankfulness about our church, this church that we love, this church which is so magnificently represented here at St. James in the city. We will transform the prevailing pessimism about the denominational church and the Episcopal church in particular if we bring a post-exilic mentality to looking at who we are and what we're about in this time, in this place, in this culture. Everybody's worried about finances and attendance. Arnold and I were talking about finances over coffee. We talk about it all the time at every level of the church, from a mission church to the House of Bishops. Everybody's talking about attendance and finances. And we can talk later, and I offered to come back and meet at the Bishop Wardens and your other leaders' convenience to talk more, possibly at a at an evening event because it's hard for me to get here Sunday in time for your vestry meeting if I have a visitation, but I'll come back anytime you ask, gracious warden, to talk about what the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles has pledged to do for St. James and for all of our churches. But this is the piece I want to leave you with. I want to go back, I want to go back to those post-exilic times. They're, they're back from the wilderness. They have wiped the, they've wiped the desert dust off their feet. And, and one of the things we learn from Scripture is that they discovered some of those old scrolls and other sacred artifacts in Jerusalem. They left them behind when they were banished to Babylon. And then they came back and they found them again and they got them out and they put them on the altar and they looked at these sacred things with a new light, a post-exilic light. And they realized that all along the documents had said, love your neighbor, care for the stranger, welcome the stranger, care for the migrant, bring the person in who has been marginalized. They said those things all along, but they weren't looking at them with post-exilic eyes. This church to which we have returned, it combines two magnificent things. The mystery of incarnation and Jesus Christ's mighty resurrection with a fully plural conception of the face of God expressing every magnificent variation of ethnicity, national and cultural narrative, orientation, identification, age, socioeconomics, and geography. Our polarized, unbelieving, impatient, angry time is starving for the word of God. It's starving for the love of Christ. It's starving for the food that gives life to the world. 
So it's good to be home. It's wonderful to be back in the temple. But we've rediscovered the scrolls, and all along they said that whenever we go out of this place filled with the Spirit of God, filled with Eucharist, it's time to go out and follow our Lord back out onto the road and feed his sheep. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.